Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Deep Talks. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. This week's episode is part of a collaboration I did with Dan Kent. Uh, I've had Dan on the podcast before. He is an author and pastor at Woodland Hills. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with Dan for his tag team work on the Renew podcast with Greg Boyd. But Dan brought me on to his podcast entitled The Surprising God. Dan is currently writing a book about open theism, and he's doing this really cool thing where he's bringing in authors, theologians, and whatever you call me, (laughs) on for uh, discussions and conversations about the problem of evil, about theodicy, and about open theism. And he invited me on to share a bit of my journey from growing up in the Word of Faith, Prosperity Gospel movement, moving into open theism in my 20s, and eventually leaving the open theist perspective. Dan is an open theist, and we had a really good conversation about this together. Dan really wanted to talk about the subject matter in my book, Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering. And if you're a new listener to the podcast, so maybe you joined and subscribed in the last couple of months, you might not be familiar with that book. It's a book I wrote Just this last fall, uh, released in September of 2022, and it's a foundational introduction to the common questions and responses Christians have given to the problem of evil throughout time. I try to lead readers in this book through the challenges of making sense of the Bible on the problem of evil and help you compare 2,000 years of Christian thought on God, evil, and suffering from arguably the most influential Christian minds in history. My goal in that book was to be a neutral tour guide for the vast majority of the book, leading you through the different perspectives throughout church history, leading you even through some of the challenging biblical books like the book of Job and trying to grapple with questions like why does God maybe seem more violent in the Old Testament and claim responsibility for more instances of natural evil and suffering than what we see in the New Testament. So this book is to help you process that. In the end, I give my own synthesis of past perspectives in a way that I hope you would find is intellectually compelling, emotionally moving, and that you would find deeply resonant with the Christian scriptures, even if you end up disagreeing with me. You can grab a copy at Amazon. I'm providing a link in the description. I think it's also available at barnesandnoble.com too, but I'll provide a link in the description below and, you know, check out some of the editorial reviews and endorsements if you're uncertain. Again, maybe you're a newer listener, just jumped in over the last couple of weeks because of some of the guests I had on, and perhaps you didn't go through the Problem of Evil series that I did a couple of years ago. Um, you know, this book's been endorsed by Russell Moore, Editor-in-Chief at Christianity Today. Justin Brierley, host of Unbelievable. He's an author and speaker. Probably many of you are familiar with Justin's great work. Greg Boyd uh, endorses it, which I think Russell Moore did confirm makes this the first and only book in human history (laughs) endorsed by both Russell Moore and Greg Boyd. So while I didn't win any New York Times bestseller uh, awards, (laughs) I do feel pretty good about that accomplishment. And finally, before we begin today's episode, I want to give a special thanks to those who are keeping this podcast afloat and keeping it ad-free by supporting it on Patreon. Thank you all. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of today's episode where you could find out a little bit more about the Deep Talks Patreon community and some of the fun and unique things that go on over there 
as well as a special thank you to a bunch of people I list off by name who who have been especially generous in their support. And with that, I hope you enjoy this special episode, once again, collaborating with Dan Kent on the other side of the interview process for his podcast, Surprising God. I'm not really good at the formal part of podcasts, so I'm just going to say uh, I have my friend Paul Anleitner uh, with us today. Uh, he is a writer. Uh, he is a podcaster. He is a, a pastor. Um, and uh, and I just and he's a great, deep thinker and he's a careful thinker. Did I miss any of the big kind of um, resume dots? Oh, no, that you've okay. said more than enough already. OK, and you have uh, you have a podcast which is called Deep Talks. Yeah. Deep Talks Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. It's dedicated to exploring the intersection of where theology um, connects with all of our meaning making endeavors. So theology and philosophy, theology in the arts and culture, theology and science. It's kind of helping people see that theology is actually happening everywhere around us. Dan, you just gave like a killer sermon at uh, at Woodland Hills about looking for theology and comic books and like our our big MCU and DC movies and looking for uh, theology and our cultural stories. So that's that's the idea. Like it's happening everywhere, and if people can see that, then hopefully they will begin to be maybe see theology in a new light that's not just um, purely like an academic discipline that you do at seminary, but it's actually happening all around you. And you're doing theology all the time, even yeah. if you might not be fully aware of it. So I, the reason why I have you here is because you just published a book called Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering. And is this your first book? Definitely. Yep. Well, how about this? I was going to try to... Uh, summarize the the book but I, I would rather you just tell me the structure of the book like how is the book laid yeah. out what is the the content strategy of the book itself great great question so um my strategy with the book was to offer people I, my demographic is is aimed towards people who have come from some sort of christian upbringing have have familiarity with the Christian story or have had some experience in Christian community. Though, if somebody doesn't have those things and they're just, uh, you know, maybe they have an interest in philosophy or they just like thinking about deep things, then I'm sure they can pick it up and get something from it as well. But I'm, I'm primarily focused on helping Christians who have found either on an emotional level that the story that they've been told about God um, and in particular how that story tries to address questions about evil, suffering, that those that have really struggled with the answers they've been given before they would give up on their faith altogether, that they would see that there are more than one stream in this broad connected to this broad Christian river. And so for me, I shared, I hinted at this already, but I, I grew up in a, in a name it and claim it prosperity gospel word of faith context. And, um, you know, I talk tell me about a this. little, tell me a little bit about what the word of faith movement. Yeah. Is. Yeah. I should, I should probably address that. Yeah. So the word of faith movement is um, maybe a subsidiary of the charismatic and Pentecostal stream. And it emerged, you know, some of the more notable names in that movement were people like Oral Roberts, uh, his son Richard Roberts, later people like Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, wow. um, 
So, I mean, even as a kid, like some people find this really, really strange, but it was just normal for me. I mean, I, I went to multiple Benny Hinn crusades in elementary school and my parents as part of like my, my daily chores in the summer had me reading Kenneth Copeland's daily devotional. Wow. So that was like the context I inhabited. And that context is, was focused on, um, I would say it was reactionary in some sense. It was reacting against a sovereignty of God theology, which would make people feel as if, you know, um, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. It was a sort of heightened uh, hyper-determinism that they were res uh, responding against. It was responding again, um, against, you know, theologies and theodicies that would make people feel as if, you know, God primarily wants you miserable and suffering. Yeah. The downside of that is people, the pendulum swung, I think, not I think, but I would make this pretty bold claim, the, <laughs> the pendulum swung too far in the other direction. So it moved into what we might call in theological terms an over-realized eschatology. So the basic premise of the word of faith theology, and this is very crude oversimplification, was that on the cross, you know, Jesus's death and resurrection was not only the payment in some sense for the salvation of our souls, but it was also payment for the health and well-being of our physical bodies too. Mm -hmm. So we had Christians, believers in Jesus have in some sense, a legal access or legal rights to um, health, well-being, essentially what you could imagine in the age to come or in heaven that you could bring, you should, and have legal rights. It was very, very legalistic in some sense, legal rights to bring that future into the now. And the primary mechanism for bringing in those benefits of Christ's death and resurrection for your health and wellness, the primary mechanism was faith. Now, nobody would have worded it like this, but the implication was that there was an unknown minimum threshold for faith, that all you had to do was muster up enough energy to hit that threshold. You don't know what it is. And again, nobody words it like this, but if you hit that faith threshold, you can have anything, anything. You want a jet? You want a Bentley? I mean, those were some of the more extreme versions of it. In my context, they were primarily focused on physical healing. Mm -hmm. And so I do believe that we see in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus making connections between your faith has made you whole. So it wasn't unwarranted. Um, but and here's where this ties into to the book, Dan. You know, from a very young age, I began to realize that all the faith I could muster up and people that I thought were really, really righteous and holy, all the faith that they could muster up still wasn't preventing all the evil and suffering from happening to our church community, from people that we loved and cared for. So even at a young age, that created a bit of dissonance. Yeah. And um, in some sense, when people ask me, how long have I been writing this book? I've been writing it my entire life. I've yeah. been working through these problems since then. I'm surprised that you came from that uh, kind of theological background, uh, not not even because of the theology, but just because when I see some of these guys, uh, the Copelands and the Hens, there's just like this uh, melodramatic kind of hysterical spirit to it. And you are like the most level kind of calm reasoning guy that I know. And, and so it's just weird that you came from that. Uh, what, what happened to that part of you? Did that part of you die, Paul? What happened to that? What happened to no, your I mean, fire? I, 
<laughs> no, I still consider myself a charismatic, you know, uh, I believe in many of the things that you would see practiced in charismatic communities. I mean, I just not to get into like too much personal detail on someone else's story, but I just had what I felt was a prophetic dream that I shared with a friend of mine wow. just this past week that mm. was from his perspective, pretty accurate. So I totally believe in those things. Um, you know, uh, where like my demeanor comes from and why I'm even still in the Christian story and Christian community is this cliche as it may sound, it's, it's totally grace because the things I've seen, Dan, and it, it's not just in those contexts, you know, I spent my, my early ministry years in what it was, would be called like third wave charismatic context. So, um, the Kansas city prophets, we're talking international house of prayer, Bethel, and I, I don't want to speak poorly of those places, but I'm just using those as points of reference that people might be familiar with. Um, that I spent a lot of time in hyper charismatic context where um, I saw really, really awful, awful abuses. Um, and so I I say that because quite literally, it's only <laughs> the grace of God. Yeah. I have no, um, I don't have any reason or strategy to give you, Dan, on, yeah. you know, what, well, what worked out to yeah bring well, well, let me, i, I want to come back to your book but I, this is just so important i think and it's especially important for people who are leaders in church and i wonder why is it what is it about uh theological movements churches denominations whatever it just seems like the more they uh kind of give themselves over to the idea that there are these miraculous potentials in life uh then there's a higher likelihood that you're going to find abuse the more you go down that path like it, it just seems mm. like it, well maybe that's maybe that's not true maybe i'm just wrong about that maybe maybe the potential for abuse and the likelihood of abuse is the same no matter which direction you go um in fact i'm inclined to no. say that that's probably true but what do you think <laughs> well yeah it'd be hard without any hard data to yeah, say yeah, is yeah, there yeah. more or less in this context versus versus another what i what i would say is um there's a lot of like boring things that people wouldn't normally consider as boring that don't be you realize that they're they shouldn't be boring until you've gone through them things for example like church governance yeah. so for example it's it's very common in non-denominational charismatic context for your church governance to be like the pastor is ceo you know, and so what the pastor decides is the law and the way that the pastor, when the pastor comes ready to retire, you don't go through like a, you know, a search committee, you know, it's typically passed down to a son or a daughter, you know, because they're the CEO, this is like their empire. And so even little things like that, where there isn't like easy structures to challenge authority when you think, hey, you know, um, you know, the church is struggling financially, like, you know, why are you driving a Bentley? Yeah. That there's not mechanisms for there to be actual like discipline for the person in authority where maybe something like a congregational style governance. And again, that stuff gets real boring until you like actually live through some of the abuses. So um, yeah. I think that's one feature. But I also think another feature, Dan, is like, you know, you might think, you know, a place like Woodland Hills, right? Um, you you got to your your current position, Dan, not not just because you had a relationship with Greg, but because 
you had gone through a vetting process at seminary, yeah. right? So you went through Bethel Seminary, and in some sense, the professors vouch for you, saying, we've vetted this guy, and he's got enough theological acumen and character to be someone that we would say is a master at his discipline. Um, and so you've gone through a process of vetting. Another unique thing about Pentecostal and charismatic stream is it's typically been anti-intellectual. Mm -hmm. And so the mechanism for actually coming into positions of authority is usually, and there's some strengths to this actually, because they, they highlight and emphasize, you know, the spirit's been poured out on all flesh. Yeah. You can, you know, as John Wimber used to say, like, you can do this stuff. And I love John Wimber, the, you know, founder of the vineyard movement. So a lot of that gets translated into, you don't need a degree. You don't need to be in the elites of society. And there's some truth to that. You can do the stuff and you can be a leader. What that ends up doing though, oftentimes, Dan, is like, there's kind of this like hierarchy of a hierarchical struggle between who's got like the craziest revelations or they're the most charismatic. And I don't mean theologically, but charismatic in their delivery, who can draw the biggest crowd, who can bring the biggest offerings. That's right. And so that becomes kind of its own vetting system. And I think when that's the vetting system, sometimes what you get at the top are the people that aren't necessarily the most virtuous per se, yeah. but they're really good at garnering attention. They are incredibly creative. Um, they know how to hold a crowd and hold an audience. Then that's not always the case, but I think that would be a couple reasons why. Well, as a transition question, that's that's really uh, well said, by the way. Uh, but as a transition question, uh, transitioning back to the the original question, I, I want to ask you this because I, I I really appreciated, uh, and I think this is where you and I connect uh, a lot. Um, but you had said that. Uh, this kind of anti-intellectualism that you're talking about. And you specify, and I can't remember exactly where, but you specify that you believe that God is knowable. And there's a lot of uh, Christians who don't believe that God is knowable. In fact, there are some streams of Christian uh, Christianity where um, the, the more we know about God, the less faith we have. And so mm -hmm. knowing things is actually a liability to our faith, and and uh, which I think is absurd and it causes all sorts of problems. But people believe that, and so you want to you want to take a leap of faith, and the better the bigger the leap, the bigger the faith. And so there's a there's an, a strange logic to it, but uh, it's flawed. But th there's less extreme versions of that as well, where people are just against the idea of knowing God. But I've always thought, well, if God is not knowable, then then he's not revealed. And in which case, what are we doing? And um, and so I, I really like that you kind of declared that, look, I believe God is knowable. So what can you tell me about that? Well, I think when we talk about like the ways that God is knowable, and you know, I think what you might be referring to, Dan, is oftentimes this, um, this bifurcation between uh, general revelation and special revelation, um, or we might say like reason and intuition that a lot of times there are there have been christian traditions that have emphasized the the brokenness of our faculties of reason as a result of the fall yeah because of the fall our faculties of reason are so jacked up they're so flawed and marred that you actually can't come to know god in things like what seems to be strongly hinted at in romans one like in his creation right yeah um, so there's been this tradition that has strongly emphasized the fall to a point in which 
it is because it does become like what you're suggesting, Dan, like it's almost like you can't really know God at all, or at the very least, the way that you know God is primarily through things like we might say, like an inner witness or intuition, it would be, we'd often claim, and this is again, pointing to the charismatic and Pentecostal stream, that it's the spirit speaking to you, which I totally believe happens, Dan. But I also believe there are things just like gut intuitions, confirmation biases that we, it's really difficult to sift through, sift through both of them. The result of that is um, maybe on one pillar, and I address this in the book, you can go to an extreme where you emphasize the fall of creation so much that I think you move into something that the early church declared was a fundamental heresy, antithetical to the true gospel. And we could call this Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism was a, a hyper dualist ontology. And that's a lot of, that might be a word salad. But all that means is that the Gnostics believe that behind our material world was a fundamentally flawed demigod that had control and actually brought it to be. And that the goal of Christianity was that Jesus came not even in flesh, that Jesus came purely as spirit to reveal to us spiritual truths so that we could get enlightenment and that our souls could escape this, this mortal, broken, material world. Now, there are some like lesser, or we might say like baby Gnosticisms that have kind of crept back in to um, evangelical Christianity, which I still consider my, my myself a part of that broad subset. Yeah. And we see that in the way that creation is talked about. You know, I'll give one example, Dan, you know, growing up um, in a evangelical so evangelical will be the broader heading charismatic was the subheading i went to a, a christian school k-12 through christian school that essentially taught me that science was a conspiracy that was being um you know propagated by atheists around the globe to keep us in the dark about who god is so things like carbon dating for example <laughs> that's that was like a that was something made up by these atheists and it was untrustworthy um, and behind that is this sense that like creation is so flawed it's so under the the presence and power of sin that we can't know anything about it at all and i think that's a ditch too far and yeah. i think what we what we can actually do and this is kind of what i'm trying to do in this book is if we can lead people back on maybe a journey through time backward and we start from the scriptures and we go, okay, so I've got this way that I look at the scriptures. Maybe I grew up in a tradition that was like, things are so bad. It's so fallen that we can't know God in math and science or in music unless a Christian is doing it. Yeah. How do we get to that point? Okay. So I might still interpret the biblical text that way, but Maybe there's a different way of seeing it. And so what I wanted to lead readers through is a journey of going, okay, I come to the scriptures and I go, yeah, I still might read it this way, but what about the first followers of Jesus outside of the biblical canon? Like, what about the people that actually learned from the apostles? Yeah. Like John, for example, John the Beloved. How did they understand the world and creation? And then, like, can we go from there and kind of do a journey from from that first century context to where we are today to see where there might've been like points of variation along mm -hmm. the journey. And so I think that investigation is what I 
uh, trying to do with this specific subject, but I think it has broader implications yeah. um, to help people maybe uncover like, all right, I learned this, but is this the only way to understand the Christian story? Is this the most faithful way to understand the Christian story? Would the earliest followers of Jesus recognize my beliefs at all? Mm-hmm. And so to, I guess maybe one last thing I'd say about that, Dan, is to celebrate something because I've been, you know, maybe, um, you know, a bit critical of my charismatic and Pentecostal um, upbringing. One of the good things about that early Pentecostalism was the emphasis on, well, we're a continuation of the book of Acts. We're living in that now. And so I think that fostered me in, in me a sense that I actually want to get back to the earliest sources. And so if I think about like the story of Acts is continuing, the early church is continuing, would be really cool for me to see like outside of the bible what christians in the first century and second century and third century had to say so i think that was a positive um, impact of at least that sort of pentecostal emphasis as i was reading through it and like i said i haven't gotten to your synthesis yet one of the things that i noticed is that you um you, you you talk about all these things and there's this spirit there's like this tenderness in your spirit as you're talking about these things. And I really do get this feeling like you are looking at that younger Paul Anleitner saying, these are scary things. There are scary things that, um, that may lead you to want to give up your faith. And, um, and, and what you do is you're giving your younger self permission to not do that and to just hang in there. And, um, and so in that sense, not only is the book like a, uh, a great analysis of the history of Christian thought around some of these these issues, but it also kind of, um, especially in the fearless, sort of calm, sort of thorough and, um, you know, to the best of your ability, unbiased way that you analyze these things, there is this spirit of courage that it leaves the reader with too. And I think that that's just as value if valuable, if not more valuable than the actual uh, arguments of the book itself. And, uh, mm. and so you, I Dan. just, that's I, really kind. I, and I, I, it's, it's awesome. Um, and so let me ask you this. Mm. I'm looking at this and some of the big obstacles that I remember, obviously the problem of evil is a big obstacle. That's sort of the, the main gist of the book, but you also talk about science in there and you, you talk about, uh, you know, anti-intellectualism, but what are, are there other big obstacles that I'm, that I'm forgetting that you kind of address? That's good, Dan. Um, I'd say, you know, maybe the big one I'm trying to get to is, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time. So I've, you know, the, the book is broken up into, I got it here. So I should probably make sure I'm saying this right. You know, it's, it's broken up into um, four parts you know, and the first part of the book is helping people process their questions about the Bible. So one of the big ones, right, when people are trying to figure out, well, how should I pray, for example, when a friend gets diagnosed with cancer? This is a real practical thing I'm trying to turn people to, not just, you know, the the philosophical journey is in service to our day-to-day lives. And we, I might say, like the existential living out of these questions. So you know, when we go and we're like, hey, gosh, a friend just got diagnosed with this incurable disease. How should I pray? What should I believe about God? And we go to the Bible. One of the things that we have to, I want to admit and give people the permission to admit out loud, 
is that it's really hard when we go to the Bible to try to piece together a coherent picture. So for example, if we go to, I'm going to try to find one quick example real quick, Dan. Um, you know, let's say, for example, we open up to, well, the book of Exodus, right? The book of Exodus, and, you know, we we open up, and I don't have the exact chapter, but we open up to the book of Exodus where um, God kills all of the firstborn Egyptians in the final plague. And we're wrestling with, you know, boy, I... I I wonder what God's will is for my friend who's been diagnosed with cancer. And we go there, right? And then we jump ahead to like the, the gospel of Luke and we see Jesus heal this woman. And then he says that this woman has been afflicted by Satan. And I try to put those things together. One of the things I want people to, to feel okay saying is that it's really hard to actually try to piece together a coherent um, theodicy, a coherent way of trying to understand like, God, where are you in this? How should I respond to this? So all of this stuff for me is, is in service to the existential, meaning it's in service to that moment where an instance of suffering happens to you or someone you love, and you don't know how to categorize the suffering and respond to it. So I would say the primary objective, Dan, and this is where I, I get at in my synthesis, all this stuff going through church history is to build for us a story that we can live in that's coherent and helps us respond to instances of suffering and to properly categorize them and then to properly from that categorization learn how to respond well. So I talk about three categories for suffering, right? When we experience some sort of pain in our lives, it's either suffering that is like rightly ordered. And I do think there's a category for suffering that's actually like rightly ordered. And we'd say, this is good. You know, one example I cite is, um, I'll backtrack. I, I don't want to give that much detail because I want to honor the time that we have. Rightly ordered suffering, non-ordered suffering. So this is a category that I think we see throughout the Old Testament. And in particular, the wisdom literature in a place like the book of Job. God points to Leviathan as, and Leviathan in the ancient Near Eastern culture was a symbol of non-ordered chaos. He wasn't bad. He was more like Godzilla, right? Yeah. Is Godzilla bad? Well, well, no, it, sometimes like it kind of depends on the context, right? Right. Like if, you, if, if you're King a city Kong planner, or... if you're a city planner, Godzilla is <laughs> bad. If you're a 10 year old right. kid, city... Godzilla is awesome. Right. But if, uh, what's the three headed monster, Ghidra, if he shows up, you kind of want Godzilla there. And that's that's what Leviathan was in the ancient Near East. It was a symbol of non-order. So when we get blitzed here with snow in, in, in the Twin Cities tonight, Dan, yeah. um, it, I'm very tempted to go outside and rebuke Satan. But it's probably not Satan. It's just weather. you know. And it comes to me as a, as a bit of non-order. But I'm afforded an opportunity with that non-order to respond to it in a way, which is like, I'm going to be pissed all day that it's snowing again, or I might tomorrow instead respond to that non-order by doing something like, Hey kids, let's go outside and make some snow angels or do some sledding, you know? So how I categorize that, if I go, no, that's disorder, which is the third category I talk about, then I might respond to it inappropriately. So that's the goal. Can we get the best that we can? We're not going to get these all right. But can we grow in our sort of God's eye view of these instances of suffering so that we can respond to them well? And, um, 
you know, participate in, in God's God's ongoing process of renewal in the cosmos. And I think you and I had a conversation about open theism we did. on your podcast. I actually, I actually just mentioned you today in an article I wrote on my, my Substack, Dan, where I was writing about um, kind of what I mentioned from the outset of the podcast, that it's good that we acknowledge that we have biases. Biases aren't wrong. Biases are the way our brains filter the endless ocean of input yeah. and information. Right. But what we can do is we can be people aware of our biases that compare our vantage points to others. And in that process of sharing, if we can remain humble and and I think um, appreciative of other people's journeys, we might see more of the whole. And I mentioned you because I mentioned a couple of people that I've interviewed in the last couple of years that I go, I don't share all of the same convictions. And you know, yeah. that was a point that's a point of disagreement between the two of us, but I go, I'm not going to sever our relationship of that that's disagreement nice. because you see many parts of the whole Dan, even if I go, I don't agree with you on this. I need you to go continually. Paul, have you ever thought about this? Yeah. Because that helps check my biases. That's so yeah, great. people loved that past conversation, Dan, even though we weren't entirely on the same page, I thought it was really healthy. It's fun. I mean, we're talking about God I and mean, who cares if we're, you know, we're, we're all seeking God. That's, that's my opinion. And I, it's beautiful. In light of that, looking at your discussion on open theism, I have to know, what do you got against free will? That's what I want to know. Like, what's so wrong about free will? Obviously, you didn't come out as an open theist. Uh, so let me ask you this. Like, uh, how has your thinking around open theism and the topics related to open theism, human free will, God's foreknowledge, mm. stuff like that? You, you talk about Molinism in here. You do a great job. I was a little envious at how well you kind of articulated Molinism. Uh, I hope that if I talk about Molinism, I could do it that well, because you did a great job with it. And you did a great job with uh, process theism also. And uh, the open theism part was was pretty good as well, but it didn't convince yourself. So it could be better. So let me let me, well, you know, actually, yeah, I want to hear where you're at with all of that. Well, actually, I mean, I was a card carrying open theist for probably a decade. You know, I read God of the Possible in my uh, early 20s and found it really convincing. I thought it was a really, it was a suitable philosophical structure for making sense of the biblical narrative in a way that still affirmed the human moral responsibility for our choices. And I think yeah. that was the thing I was, I was processing the most. And I thought uh, at the time, it was primarily Greg's work, of course, getting into Clark Pinnock and others, um, was helpful. But to me, like Greg was the the godfather of that from my vantage point. Um, I know there were others that that preceded him in writing about that. Um, but in the last few years, I've experienced a bit of a change. And I think part of it has been going through church history and going, okay, where do I see, um, do I see a, a line of, um, uh, that can connect the dots from this moment to a previous moment, can I trace it back to an early apostolic witness? And what part of the thing for open theism for me is that I don't trace back the open theism as a philosophical container to hold these tensions, right? So there's two tensions that I think we, we need to affirm as part of the biblical narrative, otherwise the biblical narrative collapses humans have to be morally responsible for our choices. We really do have to have authentic free will in some sense. And the other pillar is that there can be nothing beyond God in his sovereignty. 
So to me, those are two pillars, right? And by sovereignty, I don't necessarily mean, as Greg used to call it, and maybe still does, like the meticulous blueprint sovereignty. Yeah. You know, so spoiler alert, if you get to the end of the book, I, I'm not a Calvinist either. So yeah. I think part of the difficulty is that in Protestant evangelical circles, this debate has been framed around, well, either you're a Calvinist, an Arminian, or you're an open theist, or like, you know, Molinism is kind of like, where does that fit into right. those things? And what I would like to maybe address is that um, I, I don't call myself an Arminian either. Mm. There's a much older, richer free will tradition that you can go all the way back to the early church fathers and Justin Martyr and, and Origen and Gregory of Nyssa. And you can go into the medieval scholastics like um, like Aquinas. You know, and so for me, I would say I, I much more resonate with readings of Aquinas that sees God as the primary cause of all things, meaning that like there is nothing that exists without God actively sustaining it in this very moment while allowing for God to not be the secondary cause of all things. So God can actively be willing that we exist at this very moment. He is holding all things together in Christ. All things are held together. While while allowing there to be room for um, agents in God's arena to exercise their free will, I'm no longer convinced that the open theist philo philosophy container is the best container to hold those tensions. Um, but again, I I I I can see why people find it compelling. Sure. Um, I'm not there anymore. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I also don't go on on the, you know, the side of, you know, what were some pretty vocal opponents in the 90s and early 2000s yeah. to go as right. far as to call it heresy. I think yeah. we're just trying to find the what's the best container, philosophical container that can hold these biblical truths. And yeah. um, I, I see open theism as a viable one. Uh, I just I don't think it has enough precedence. And I think there I find there to be a couple philosophical problems I can't get beyond anymore. Sure. Well, thank you all for giving some of your valuable time and attention to this podcast. I hope it ends up being of some benefit to you. I'd love to hear from you. Maybe there's something in today's discussion that resonated with you. Maybe there was a new insight that dawned on you, or maybe you even have a difference of perspective that you wanted to share. I'm glad to hear and read all of those things. So here's some of the ways you can reach out and do that. First of all, you could become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community and you could send me a direct message or you can participate in the discussion forum or in our Deep Talks Discord server. The next best place to reach out to me would be on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. You can find a link in the description for that as well. In the Deep Talks Patreon community, you will find bonus Q&A episodes, opportunities for live Q&A and discussion on Zoom with me and other listeners from around North America. And even over these past couple of weeks, I put up two different Q&A episodes, one episode about a question that came in, is there any validity to pretty fringe theory about the Israelites wandering in Exodus being uh, part of some sort of hallucinogenic experiment without us knowing, were they tripping on some form of ancient Near Eastern ayahuasca. Yes, that is a real theory. It's not really viable, spoiler alert, but I explain why and I address maybe some of the other deeper, more pressing concerns with the Exodus story. 
Also, there was another episode I just did this last week talking about questions, uh, questions involving like, why is it so difficult to understand the scriptures? Is this really God's best way of communicating? Is it his, is it his only way of communicating himself and what he's like and his story to humanity? So I addressed that question as well. A couple fun bonus Q&A episodes for all of you supporting on Patreon. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Dave, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Eli, Elise, Garth, John Mark, Jesse, uh, another John Mark, <laughs> Justin, Lola, Luke H, Matthew, Michael, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P, and Josie. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do this without you. And until next time, friends, we'll talk again soon.